Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show, Monday, November 14th. A lot to talk about today. We're streaming live here on YouTube, of course, and we are on podcast apps everywhere, uh, recorded shortly after the live stream goes up. A lot to discuss today. It's it's going to be nowhere near as long an episode as we had on Thursday, of course. Uh, but as I was sitting down today, uh, getting ready for this episode, I uh, opened up my iPad where I have the notes for the show, and I looked uh, at the top right suggested video on YouTube, and you're not going to believe what it was. I mean, this is just, this is so remarkable, but it speaks to this entire news story. And I'm looking here and I, and I kid you not, it says, this is an, this is a video from CNBC television. Of course, that's NBC's financial network, the leading financial network in terms of ratings. And it says FTX's bankruptcy puts increased pressure on the ad market. It says FTX's bankruptcy puts increased pressure on the ad market. With all of this, with people losing billions of dollars, what is quickly proving to be the largest investment scam in history? It's bigger than Madoff. Much bigger than Madoff. It's having contagion effects that are taking down other companies. You have over 100,000 creditors here, meaning customers, who are losing all of their money. And what CNBC is taking their time out to discuss is how FTX's bankruptcy is putting increased pressure on the ad market. And it gets right to the core of the reason that these networks, whether it be CNBC the mainstream media, why they did not deal with this sooner, why they did not do investigative reports on this obviously shady operation sooner. It's because they wanted the ad dollars. Remind you of anything else? Remind you of uh, another product uh, recently that was put out? Turns out it didn't work. The science was always dubious but the media promoted it like hell and refused to talk about any of its downsides and shut down, in fact, shut down people who talked about its downsides because they wanted the, and had been getting for years, the ad dollars from it. Yeah, sure does. And, and you have the fact that the media completely ignored this. Nobody reported on it. In fact, I saw an interview with a uh, rather famous short seller that was on a, a network called Hedgeye. And the short seller was talking about how he did all the work on this. He did his own investigation. He brought it to reporters at the Wall Street Journal, at the New York Times, etc. And they were shut down. Their editor said, we are not doing this story because we do not want to compromise the millions of dollars a month in ad revenue that we are garnering from FTX. We don't care if it's a scam. We don't care if our readers at the Wall Street Journal are losing all of their money in this Ponzi scheme, we're going to take money from the Ponzi scheme. And that's exactly what has been going on across the country. That has what has it's been going on all over the country, all over the world, frankly, in relation to this crypto scam. And they were able to keep the media quiet. And, and even today, uh, they, they are still sugarcoating the reality of the FTX situation because they've received 
so many ad dollars and because they don't want to implicate their friends in the Democrat Party who received millions of dollars from this. Second largest donor in the 2022 midterm cycle was Sam Bankman-Fried and his various entities. Just behind George Soros, larger than Michael Bloomberg, <clears throat> larger than Pierre Omidyar, the eBay billionaire. Huge, huge amounts of money coming in. Uh, larger than any Republican donor, I believe, on, on our side of the aisle, maybe tied with Peter Thiel. But what they're concerned about is whether or not their ad money is going to keep coming in from FTX. That's what they're most concerned about over at CNBC. It's just disgusting. It's sickening. Before I get more into the FTX story, uh, just quickly here, breaking news out this morning, a mass shooting taking place at the University of Virginia. And not a lot of information on this story really coming out very quickly. I essentially woke up to this story this morning. I guess it was it had taken place very late last night. Uh, best as anyone can tell, uh, what took place is that the a bus pulled up containing some football players that had been on a field trip. And then this other former football player from the school uh, shoots three of the players or five, perhaps, or more. But it's just as of now, two injured, three killed, uh, three football players killed. Uh, the shooter has been identified as Christopher Darnell Jones. If For those of you watching, you can see a, a photo of him here. Uh, former football player himself. And you look at this headline from the Washington Post. It's a remarkable headline. It says, suspected UVA gunman had troubled childhood, but then flourished. Christopher Darnell Jones, Jr., 22, is suspected of killing three and injuring two others at the University of Virginia. He had a troubled childhood, but then flourished? No, apparently he didn't flourish if he's doing this. If you're flourishing, then you don't go out and commit mass shootings. By definition. But it's just remarkable to see this, and it, and it reminds me of, do you remember when the Washington Post wrote an obituary of uh, 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 Baghdadi? Remember when they wrote that obituary of Baghdadi, al-Baghdadi, and uh, he was the leader of ISIS, he was killed, and they called him an austere religious scholar? It reminds me of that. I mean, it's just remarkable to me that uh, the Washington Post gives better headlines to mass shooters and to the leader of ISIS than they will give to somebody like me or somebody like Trump. It's just unbelievable to see this out of the media. But, of course, given that this mass shooter uh, is not white, this story is not going to be in the headlines for very long at all. If it's a white person, if it's an Asian person, they'll cover it. If it's a black person, a Hispanic person, it's out of the headlines very quickly. If it's a transgender uh, individual, it is out of the headlines quickly. There's been a number of transgender school shooters in recent years, 2019, the one in Colorado, out of the headlines fast. So you're not going to hear much more about this uh, UVA shooting. This is going to be out of the headlines very quickly because the shooter was black. Uh, that is just how this goes. Now, uh, we'll continue to follow it as updates come out, uh, probably have an update Thursday. Uh, but this is what's uh, going on. All American villains have three names. You know, I, I, I read that here from Peter in the chat. I think what that comes down to as far as the names is that 
it helps them identify exactly who you're talking about. So if you were to just say Christopher Jones, now you're casting a very wide net and every Christopher Jones in the country is like, no, it wasn't me. It was the other Christopher Jones. So you use the third, you use the middle name basically as a way of identifying. And a lot of times if you're dealing with a fugitive or something, it helps identify. So you look at the guy's ID and you know, you're looking for a Christopher Darnell Jones, let's say on a traffic stop, as opposed to a Christopher Jones, which doesn't help you because the name's far too common. So I think that's a big part of it is that it's a matter of just identifying at-large suspects and differentiating them from other people with the same name. I, I think that's really what that comes down to. I've, I've noticed the same thing before, uh, but we'll have more updates on that. Uh, meanwhile, the midterms, I mean, there's not a lot more to say. Obviously, we had a two-hour-plus-long show last week. What I will say is there's more and more data coming out. Uh, the Arizona vote count, of course, continues to be a complete debacle, uh, you know, and, and so we'll see what happens there. I don't know what's going on. I don't think anybody truly knows what's going on behind closed doors in Arizona, why uh, they can get the votes counted in Brazil the same night. They can seem to get the votes counted the same night in just about every part of the world, even parts of the world, by the way, where they hold their elections on Sundays. You know, in, in a lot of the world, uh, traditionally elections are held on Sundays, figuring, you know, you'll get higher turnout, I guess, which is, they figure to be a good thing because, uh, people don't have work and that's how much of the world works. And despite having maybe less, uh, fewer civil servants on hand to count the votes, they get the votes kind of the same day, but not in Arizona. It is uh, really something to see. I'm going to have more analysis for you on the midterms, probably Thursday. There's a lot of contradictory data out there right now that I'm trying to parse through. Uh, for example, the whole thread about Gen Z voters, well, what remains true as far as I can tell in the data is that there were record numbers of Gen Z voters in certain pockets of the country, in certain pockets of the country where they were turned out. Uh, Colorado seemed to have a lot of them. Michigan seemed to have a lot of them. Uh, but at large, actually, there was lower Gen Z turnout this year than there was in 2018. Think about that. Lower overall Gen Z turnout than in 2018. So what that tells you is kind of what I had hypothesized in the last episode, which is that um, the abortion story itself this time around did not get massive turnout from Gen Z on its own, nor did Biden's uh, B vote buying attempt, basically telling people that he's going to forgive their student loans. Of course, it was never constitutional. The courts have shut it down. The White House has now shut down the website that takes in the applications. So it is, uh, you know, really, really uh, an interesting data point. In fact, it turns out that you have lower Gen Z turnout this year than you had in 2018 midterms overall. Or, or lower in that age range, because a lot of the Gen Z, of course, in the 2018 midterms would have been under 18. They would not have been old enough to vote. Now that more of them can vote, you still have lower, you have lower turnout in the 18 to 29 is what I mean to say. Whether you call it Gen Z, whether you call it millennial, 18 to 29, lower turnout. Okay, so now I need to circle back here to the FTX story, because that's really something that I think I'm in a unique position to break down for you. Um, I know a thing or two about finance. Um, I uh, took the Series 3 exam shortly after my 18th birthday. I passed it. I took the Series 34 exam, passed it. Series 65, passed it. All, all in the same week there. 
And so I have some familiarity with financial markets. And it's one angle on the show that I can bring you where when you look around at a lot of other broadcasts by traditionally political commentators, they tend not to have a lot of domain expertise in areas like finance. And who can blame them? It's an esoteric area to, to study, to research, to know about, to figure out how it all fits together and works. But one of the things that's emerging uh, about this FTX is that the narrative that was initially put out there by lots of people online and certainly by the mainstream media and is still being pushed today by the mainstream media, the, the narrative is and it's not a correct narrative, but the, the, the narrative seems to be that what happened was that you had FTX run by Sam Bankman-Fried. It's a uh, basically a, a crypto brokerage, meaning that they also, in the crypto land, the way they do it is that they hold uh, custody of funds at the same institution that operates as the exchange. It's all in the same house. And there's issues of, with that in terms of conflicts of interest, as I talked about in the last episode, but that's how they do it in crypto land and unregulated crypto land. And there's an there's a firm called Alameda Research, which is a hedge fund. He started two years before FTX, a, a quantitative hedge fund. He loans customer funds from FTX to Alameda against his own terms of service and against the law. And Alameda loses the money and then there's a run on FTX. People want their money out. There's not enough money left around to hand out. Now, that's the narrative that's being pushed by these people who have received millions of dollars in compensation in exchange for ads from FTX. What appears to be the case is not that. What appears to be the case, based on the best evidence we have now, is that Alameda gets started. It's unclear uh, where... Alameda gets its startup capital, whether it was from Sam Bankman-Fried's parents, who are Silicon Valley tech lawyers, teach at Stanford Law. They're on a lot of boards of directors. They're basically people that trade in the California Silicon Valley prestige economy. So they've never really invented anything. They've never uh, you know, invented a great product or a great service or started a great company, but they trade in prestige. And because of their professorships, these are people that are thought of as credible. And so people want to have them on their boards. Was it from them? Who knows? But he starts up this hedge fund. The hedge fund uh, claims to be just absolutely killing it in the realm of trading, basically purporting to do inter-exchange arbitrage. In other words, uh, things are trading at different prices on different exchanges. You buy the same product, let's say Bitcoin, you buy the less expensive one, sell the more expensive one, you make the difference. Of course, to do something like that and to make billions of dollars, you have to have a lot of money because these inefficiencies are very, very small. And if you want to exploit them, there is a great deal of infrastructure that's required to even, let's say, execute the trades quickly enough. I mean, you may need to run fiber optic line. You may need to run point to point microwave towers to get the trades done. In fact, to do uh, that sort of trading what is very likely is that you actually have to have a seat on the exchange and be located either in the same building as the relevant exchange to execute the trade quickly enough or across the street. Uh, so if you look at market making firms and these sort of high frequency trading firms, they're located, if not in the same building, usually across the street because they need to be within 
millionths of a second faster than the next guy who also wants to make that risk-free money. So none of that made sense. He starts FTX. He gets a ton of money from Silicon Valley, from the biggest names in Silicon Valley, the VC firms, the uh, Sequoias, the the Kleiner Perkins, etc., the, the most prestigious firms. They pile money into this, apparently with no due diligence, or else they would have known that this guy's background was BS. And FTX begins advertising. I mean, a great deal of the money raised from Silicon Valley must have been spent on advertising between the arena and all of the different advertising and marketing they did, the celebrity marketing, the celebrity advertising. This was a huge undertaking. They were spending millions of dollars on ads. I mean, I, I look, for example, at this old tweet. This is from this uh, A. Pompliano character on, on Twitter. He's got like 15 Twitter accounts and he's just one of these guys. They call them Bitcoin maximalists. Really what they are is they're, they're Bitcoin hype, uh, crypto hype, pump and dump characters is what they are. And they create a personality within this the realm of crypto so that people like FTX can come up and pay them to endorse their product. That's really the the, the profit model for the most part. Now, if you're not watching, I'll, I'll read it to you. There's, an, there's basically this tweet he puts out. He's at a Miami Heat game in what was FTX Arena. It's now been renamed. And he says, FTX just gave $500 in crypto to every person sitting in one section of the arena for the Miami Heat season opener. Don't sleep on how powerful this sponsorship will be. So you see, I mean, just literally giving away money, everything they can do, they're hyping the product. And then what it turns out is that FTX is loaning money, quote unquote, to Alameda, the original entity. Now, there's this huge web of other investments that exist, uh, other shell companies, some of which are kind of understandable, where if you want to operate in Japan, you have to have a Japanese entity, something like that. But there's a lot that aren't. And what actually appears to be the case is not that Alameda did any quantitative trading that didn't work out or a margin trade that didn't work out. In fact, what it appears to be the case is that Alameda never did any trading at all. And this is prototypical for Ponzi schemes. When you look at a Ponzi scheme, it's very seldom that the Ponzi scheme has done any trades at all. Sometimes they do. No, I mean, sometimes they trade. Usually they, they, they almost never trade profitably. Almost never. Uh, but generally, as a rule of thumb, they don't do any trading. And it appears that that was the case uh, for Alameda Research. Now, they did some transactions. I mean, it appears that they had basically a backdoor written into the code such that they could sneak money out the backdoor of FTX, put it into Alameda without anybody noticing. That's reporting that's come out of Reuters and CNBC in the last two days. Reuters, I think, was the original reporter of that. And what seems to be the case is that, you know, sometimes they'd send Bitcoin and have to turn it into dollars, or sometimes they'd send Ethereum and have to turn it into dollars to make the investment. But the investment itself was into an, another entity that didn't exist, that didn't have any other business, really. They were so lazy that they actually used FTX's old address in Berkeley as the address for these fake companies. And the, the, the fake companies would have like these websites that would sell electronics, but then you click to buy and you can't actually buy them. So it appears to be an entire mirage, an entire fraud scheme in which they built billions of dollars. It wasn't something where, you know, they went into the market or maybe they even took money from people they shouldn't have went into the market and traded and lost it. No, in fact, what seems to be the case is that the entire thing was a facade. 
The entire thing was a mirage. The entire thing was an artifice. It never existed. That appears to be the case. Now, they say, well, they've got a billion left or so, or 900 million, and they've got, you know, 9 billion at least in liabilities as of Friday. Well, no, it turns out that, you know, they've got even more liabilities than that, and then they are, quote unquote, hacked. Hacked. That's right. So what starts to happen on Friday, um, I believe, it was, was it Friday? Yep. Friday night is that FTX is hacked. People notice on certain public blockchains that money is flowing out of there. People look on their phones and now they see on their phones their account that said something before now says zero. Some kind of a compromise happens where then they lose all remaining liquid assets on Friday. Uh, their council, the one council that was left, another one of their council was uh, formerly involved in a poker, online poker cheating scandal where basically the, uh, what would happen is they'd basically just trade against the, or, or, or play poker against the people who were playing online because they could see their cards. I mean, it seems like a really, like a dumb thing to do to play poker online because you never quite know if you're playing an honest game. I mean, if you're doing it that way, you never really know. Maybe you are, but you never really know. Uh, and so he was involved with that, but a different member of their corporate council came out and said, yes, they were hacked. Was it an inside job? Was it truly a hacker? I don't know. Uh, the uh, Several people have claimed to know the identity of this hacker. It's unclear. There were reports about a jet flying from the Bahamas to Argentina. Uh, the jet was owned by a major Democrat donor, uh, billionaire. Did, was it carrying these people? Uh, that seems to have been refuted and debunked. And the latest we hear is that they are uh, in the custody of or under the supervision of the Bahamian authorities. The other thing, of course, we learned in between the last episode and today is that what's going on in, in perfect Democrat fashion, you have Sam Bankman-Fried, the girlfriend who's the CEO of Alameda Research, who looks like she's got Down syndrome or something. I mean, it just does. It's just a very bizarre look. And eight other people all living in one apartment and all having sex with one another in some kind of, you know, what they refer to in their world as a polyamorous relationship in which 10 people are all in the relationship together. Uh, you know, if they had gotten married, maybe the two of them, they couldn't be forced to testify against one another. But no, they uh, were in a polyamorous, at least 10 person large uh, relationship. So they're all having sex. They're all using meth, it turns out late into the night. That's another piece of news that's come out. Uh, but one thing that became clear very quickly is that these people were huge supporters of the Democrats. As I told you, second largest donor to the Democrats for the midterms uh, and doing a lot of dealings with the White House. So you have this report out of the Washington Free Beacon. And, and look at the headline. Again, it's like, what's what are these nice headlines about? Beleaguered crypto billionaire was hobnobbing at White House just six months ago. Sam Bankman-Fried is under investigation for mishandling customer deposits as his company implodes. Beleaguered crypto billionaire? That's what they call him? He's not a billionaire. And he's not beleaguered. He's an accused fraudster. Uh, but again, it's like they're going soft on him because he bought ads at virtually every media outlet. So they just go soft on him. Uh, they report here a cryptocurrency billionaire facing federal investigation for mishandling customer funds had a high level White House had high level White House meetings just months ago. Uh, basically, what appears to be the case is that he hired uh, the brother of Steve Reschetti, 
who then got him in with Steve Reschetti. We've talked about that connection before, how you hire the, basically the, the, the brothers of certain members of the White House run lobbying firms, including Joe Biden's brother himself runs a lobbying firm. Um, or you buy art from Hunter Biden at a huge markup and then you get White House meetings. That's how this works. Um, so there's a company that's located basically across the street from the White House. It's In fact, it's next to Treasury, same building as the Willard essentially attached, called Reschetti Inc., and when you want a meeting with Steve Reschetti, who who runs basically the financial side of the White House, you give money to them. That's how it works. Or you hire Ron Klain's wife, uh, who's the chief of staff. You pay them a million bucks. You get at your White House meeting. You get what you want. Uh, so there's huge amounts of money involved. I won't bore you with all the facts and figures here. Huge amounts of money. But he was meeting in the White House with Steve Reschetti on April 22nd, May 12th, according to visitor logs, uh, May 13th with uh, Charlotte Butash. So he's basically been in D.C. every oh, every couple weeks, at least, over the last several years on this. Uh, what he ostensibly claimed is that he wanted to bring about crypto regulation. And people were debating, well, does he want to bring about crypto regulation to help Americans? Or does he want to bring about crypto regulation to regulate his competitors out of business? The reality seems to be neither one of those are the case. What he wanted to do was look like a good guy. And say, you know, we really need some rules here. We really need some regulations, some rules of the road. And it's like, guess what? Everything he was doing, you don't need new regulations to stop. Wire fraud is already illegal. Mail fraud is already illegal. Bank fraud is already illegal. Grand theft is already illegal. Insider trading is already illegal. Front running your customers, already illegal. You don't need new regulation to address any of the things that essentially are alleged to have happened at FTX. What it appears to be is one of these kind of look at me, I'm the good Samaritan type people. It's like when we caught that guy on Predator DC, Sid Pedreras, and then he calls the cops on himself and says, there's a girl offering herself for sex at home. Go check it out. The cops say, well, how do you know? What are you doing here? Why do you, where are you from? And you know, they arrest him. But it's like a lot of times it's, it's a criminological profile for these people to try to look like good Samaritans. It's very common, in fact, for arsonists to be volunteer firefighters. Very common. Uh, it is something that they do to get proximity, to, to put up a smoke screen. And the same can be said for his uh, charity nonsense. And, you know, oh, we need to give away all my money and I need to support uh, climate change causes and I drive a Corolla. It's all a smoke screen. I dress like a slob and I, I drive a Corolla and I live with 10 people. It's like, no, no. You 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 fly on private jets. So what does it make any difference if you drive a Corolla or a Camry or whatever it was? I think it was a Corolla. You live with 10 people, yeah, in a $45 million penthouse. And the reason you live with them is because you're in some freakish, polyamorous commune relationship. And you're swapping fluids with 10 people and using crystal meth. Not just Adderall, by the way. The latest reports out say crystal meth. Just so you know. Big difference between the two. One's a pharmaceutical drug. One is a street drug. They were using, uh, it appears, both. Or at least crystal meth. So it is uh, just a, 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 an unbelievable smokescreen that this person put up in order to deflect attention away. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci, in an interview last month, said that he had traveled to D.C., uh, every two or three weeks for the last year to lobby for cryptocurrency regulations. It is just uh, remarkable. 
Scaramucci became the crypto guy after leaving the White House. I've met Scaramucci. I've known Scaramucci. I mean, loosely, you know, loose acquaintances. I mean, probably talked to him once a year since 2015. Anthony Scaramucci. I mean, so seven years. Hard to believe. I was a kid and he was involved in finance and I thought that's what I wanted to be involved in and all of that. Uh, there was one paragraph in here that I just found to be really a telling about the lack of expertise in the media, especially the conservative media. But it says here, others have expressed skepticism that Bankman Freed is pushing to have the Commodity Futures Trading Commission oversee cryptocurrency regulation instead of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has stronger enforcement powers and a much larger budget. Okay. First of all, let's be very clear about something. Both the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the SEC have brought crypto-related cases. In some instances, they've both brought cases against the same defendant. So they both already regulate crypto. When it comes to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the trading of currencies and the trading of related currency derivatives, commodities, commodities, derivatives, um, really anything besides equity derivatives, um, to include cash-settled index derivatives, are already regulated by the CFTC by law. They already do that, okay? Uh, and I should note, they don't have weaker enforcement powers than the CFTC, in fact, or than the SEC. A lot of people would say the CFTC, in fact, at least in terms of their attitude, uh, prosecute cases more strongly than the CFTC does, or rather, than the SEC does. The CFTC uh, enforces more strongly than the SEC does. Sorry, a lot of alphabet agencies here. Um, a lot of people would say that. I've dealt with both of these agencies before. They investigated me as soon as I came out in support of Trump. Both of them found no wrongdoing in my businesses, cleared me of any wrongdoing, but I've had to deal with both investigations from both of these agencies before. Um, and frankly, I mean, I will say the CFTC was a little bit goonish. I found the SEC to be very professional in my dealings with them. I've dealt with them to a limited degree on behalf of clients uh, on the lobbying side, helping clients deal with SEC investigations that have started up, helping work them out favorably by lobbying members of Congress to put pressure on the agencies. It's part of what I do. So I can speak to the lobbying side of what he was doing here. But what I can tell you is also this. So first of all, this claim in the last paragraph of this article is not true. They don't have strong enforcement uh uh, powers. And if you adjust for the fact that the SEC has to regulate a lot more cases, they actually don't have a lower budget than the SEC. In fact, they probably have a higher budget adjusted for that. Okay. So anyway, this is by Chuck Ross. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't think they have editors there at all uh, to, to check this stuff. But what I can say is that he was not spending FTX. I mean, he donated lots of money, second largest donor, but donations on their own are not enough. Uh, he was not spending nearly as much money on lobbying, actual registered lobbying, um, as he needed to be. Somebody writes here in the chat, the SEC is more scary. They're, they're not more scary to people that know financial regulation. I mean, they're just not. I mean, it's the same thing. They can both sue you. They can both write up referrals to, for people to prosecute you. Neither of them can prosecute you. Um, and, you know, as far as criminally, they, they function basically exactly the same. They're, they're really no different from one another um, in terms of, I mean, maybe they're scary because you've heard of them more, but uh, besides name ID, there's, there's really not a lot of difference. They just regulate different instruments, different parts of, of the financial markets. But 
talking about this year, I mean, in the last year or something, uh, he has spent like 600,000, 650,000 on registered lobbying. It's not nearly enough. He needed to be spending, I mean, Coinbase spends two and a half million on lobbying to stay afloat, just to stay alive in the last year. So the big banks spend a lot. That's why you get to a certain level. It's like JP Morgan on a regular basis, Wells Fargo has issues that they resolve civilly, that they resolve criminally, even over the years, they've had these kind of problems. Uh, and when they do, it is not something that's covered wall to wall in the media because they spend a lot on advertising. And it's not something that, you know, it causes a great deal of fanfare from the agencies because the agencies want to just be able to find them again next year for some little issue over here, or some little issue over there. So it is really, um, it is really, you know, something, would you ever lobby for policies? You don't, you adamantly don't support. No, I mean, I don't really lobby for policies. It's not something, I mean, really when you talk about what we're lobbying, it's, it's, it's solving acute problems for people, you know, Somebody runs into an SEC investigation, they need some help, their lawyer calls us, we lobby members of the House Financial Services Committee to put some pressure on the SEC, Senate Banking Committee to put some pressures on the SEC and say, hey, you know, you guys have better things to do. And they send a letter, they make some phone calls, and it, and it doesn't, you know, absolve our clients of wrongdoing, it just helps it move through uh, more favorably. If it's a bad case, it's a bad case, but we, but we make it work out more favorably for them as best we can. And that's that's an important dynamic. So he was not spending nearly as much on lobbying. Uh, the idea that this guy thought he could just come to DC and lobby on his own. I mean, have you looked at him? I mean, look at this this freak. He, he is not going to be convincing to a congressman. He'll be frightening. I mean, frankly, if this guy's walking up to your office in Congress, you run because he looks so scary. I mean, he looks like a like a very disturbed little toad. He really does. Of course, they had big celebrity endorsements. Listen to this clip here. This is from Kevin O'Leary Shark of Shark Tank fame, the Canadian investor, what he says about uh, this whole thing. In, in, in managing the decisions on which projects to, to invest in, because I'm very fortunate, my deal flow is insane. I see everything. Mm -hmm. And I have to disclose, I'm a paid spokesperson to, uh, to FTX and a shareholder there too. So paid spokesperson. Okay, he, at least he discloses it. Because we mentioned them. And big advocate for Sam because... He has two parents that are compliance lawyers. If there's ever a place I could be that I'm not going to get in trouble, it's going to be at FTX. So, well, that turned out not to be true. I mean, it's one way of reasoning through it. Um, you know, it's kind of the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes. Her parents were also very rich. Um, in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried, I think what you're looking at in his case is like you're talking fourth or fifth generation high-level Jewish money. In the case of Elizabeth Holmes, you're talking about, I think, fifth or sixth generation or seventh generation WASP money, meaning, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, for those of you who don't know, New England WASP money. And when you're born into that, I mean, forget money, because anybody's parents are only going to be so rich and you're only going to be able to get so much money out of your parents anyhow. But the connections, the, the connections and the credibility that you can trade off of is why you see somebody like Elizabeth Holmes drop out of Stanford and just get a billion dollars of investment in two years. I mean, that that just does not happen without some kind of connections, okay? Mark Zuckerberg starting up Facebook, I think basically the first hundred million he raised was called in by his parents, okay? 
I mean, they called up a friend and said, you know, Mark could use some money. Would you mind sending him a hundred million? And they basically they say yes. So, I mean, you get an idea. Okay. I mean, Elon Musk's parents were, I think, mining, mining tycoons from South Africa. Father was a big time mining tycoon. Bill Gates, his mother was on the board of IBM. All right. Who's, of course, software he basically ripped off originally as his first product at Microsoft. So these things don't happen by accident, okay? Nobody just comes out of nowhere, all right? I mean, even Bezos' parents, they were not uber wealthy, but they gave him 500 grand or something, and that was like the eighth business of his they had given 500 grand to. I I don't know about you. I can't get 500 grand from my parents to start up a business. Um, So, you know, people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, in these cases, yes, it is who you know. I mean, if you're going to be successful, it's both. If it's going to be a true, genuine success, it is both what you know and who you know. Because if you know people, but you're you don't you're not able to demonstrate any merit, then it usually doesn't work out, as was the case here. In fact, what I will say is, in interviews with Sam Bankman-Fried, I don't see a lot of demonstrated expertise uh, put out there by him. I mean, like he described the hardest part of this inner exchange arbitrage he was doing allegedly from 2017 on. He uh, uh, he said, well, there's a lot of infrastructure we had to set up, like setting up entities and LLCs and bank accounts. It's like, whoa, dude, like that's a matter of hiring a couple lawyers, a couple law firms to that CPA firm. Bing, bing, bing. You just send them money. They form the entities. It's done, which is surely what he did. The hard part would be setting up the technology, would be setting up the point-to-point microwave towers would be setting up the undersea cables or the overland cables that are involved with high-frequency trading, getting the exchange seats at, you know, the, the whatever exchange seat in Chicago to trade the futures on Bitcoin as a hedge or, you know, I mean, that would be the hard part, not bank accounts. So there was all kinds of little warning signs in the way that he spoke. Another thing I'll tell you to look out for is in his interviews, in response to practically any meaningful question that Sam Bankman-Fried would receive, he would say, that's a great question. That's a good question. It's a good question. And that is always a warning sign. When you hear somebody say, oh, that's a good question. It's a good question. That's a good question. It's a warning sign that now it, it can be a warning sign that they are just extremely nervous. Okay. So like anything, when it comes to body language or tells of deception, any one thing on its own is not truth, false, lie, not lie. Even a polygraph can't tell you that. But you look at them in totality. And one of the warning signs is when people do that, because what they are doing is you say, let's say that you were, um, you see these stolen valor guys, right? They claim to be former Navy SEALs and they're not. And Don Shipley from, uh, on YouTube calls them up. He does these videos and he says, uh, he says, what buds class were you in? You know, he knows he's already looked them up and they say, they don't say, oh, I was in uh, 234, 231. 186. No, they don't say that. They say, that's a good question. Um, 141. Because they have to make something up and they need to buy some time to reference it in their brain because it's not the truth. Whereas like if somebody calls your name, you look, you know your name subconsciously, consciously, and in every other way. And so it's a warning sign to look out for. And in all of his interviews, it was this constant, oh, that's a good question. It's a good question. He did an interview on uh, Bloomberg on the David Rubenstein show. David Rubenstein is uh, one of the founders, probably the principal founder of the Carlyle Group here in D.C., big private equity firm. He's a brilliant guy, somebody I'd love to know. I don't know him. I'd love to know him, uh, but I don't. I wish I could say I did. Uh, And 
Rubenstein interviews him and he says, so where did the money come from for all this? And as soon as he says that, the guy starts violently shaking. I mean, like really shaking. And, you know, one thing one of my friends told me is he says, uh, that's why he has to dress like a slob is to further the autistic thing. Because if he were wearing a suit and tie and then he starts spazzing out or looking away or shaking or having these ticks and all these things, it would stick out a lot more. I mean, if he were dressed like I'm dressed right now in a professional kind of attire, did his hair, shaved, and then he starts, you know, convulsing or, or shaking violently, you would say, oh, that's kind of odd. It would stick out. But when he's dressed like a guy who goes to adult daycare because he's mentally disabled, and that's no knock on the actual men mentally disabled person, it's a knock on him, all of that kind of behavior fits in better. So it's... Uh, you know, it's really something, really something to uh, to see and, and to watch. I'm just looking through the live chats here. Math, uh, meth psychosis. Yeah, you have meth psychosis. Um, I mean, people don't understand, like, even if you have a great business, just how hard it is to get a meeting at a place like Sequoia. Okay. And the co-founder of this, a guy named Gary Wang, who we can only find one or two photos of on the entire internet. Uh, he was made a special advisor to Sequoia. Now, Sequoia, I think there's something very fishy going on with Sequoia with Chinese money. I have heard a lot of rumors about that for years, that there's something fishy going on with Chinese money in Sequoia. I have not been able to confirm those rumors. I don't know who this Gary Wang is. Is he associated with the Chinese? I do not know. Uh, meaning the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, the Chinese regime, the MSA. I don't know. What's going to be interesting here is we, we assume that Sam Bankman fried will be prosecuted because all the money in the world is not going to save him. And he didn't do enough lobbying and he didn't deal with this problem that he had proactively enough. I don't think he ever intended to deal with it proactively. He was undercapitalized. He could have dealt with it. He could have just been like another crypto situation that blows up. It's not going to help him. But what's going to be very telling in all this is that you have a lot of different people involved here. And it's going to be telling to see who isn't prosecuted? Who is not prosecuted? Because, you know, there's going to be deals worked out where people cooperate in exchange for less time or this, that, or the other. But who's not prosecuted in all this? And, and who you're going to really want to watch are the people that slip away. Because that won't be coincidental. And who they are is not going to be a coincidence and everything else. Now, you look on the website of this uh, Alameda Research, and it doesn't look like the website of a $10 billion fund. I mean, these people, they were all rank amateurs. They had never, including Bankman Freed, had never done anything in finance beyond what would be described as essentially an intern or like a, like a summer rotation uh, kind of person, summer rotation employee to intern. Nobody involved with this. They, they didn't have the most basic knowledge of, of finance. Another tell that I look to, and it's just it just so happens to be good timing, as far as when I came out as like a public figure and when I started doing Fox business, I started doing my first Fox business hits and you can't find them now. They've been wiped off the internet. They're gone pretty much. I started doing them when I was 17. This was in 2015. Um, I, was it even late 2014? It may have been, but let's say 2015, early 2015. Now, you know, Stuart Varney and, and all of that. And, and then in 16 was the young Trump supporter cast on CNN and HLN. I was a regular. And one of my tells is when somebody bursts onto the scene 
and I look and I say, wait a second, have I been known, forget famous, have I been known like a known public figure longer than they have? And you say, what in the hell? And if they're like suddenly a billionaire or they're suddenly, you know, a multi-hundred millionaire and you've never heard of them until last year or the year before last, whatever, like Avenatti, there's something wrong there. Because the, the, the normal course of progress in life is one which, you know, plays out over 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I mean, people say, wow, I'd like to be like Elon Musk. Okay. Well, he's been at it for 20, what, 28 years, 30 years. What do you start? 94 or something? 93 at all of this. So, you know, keep that in mind. And so when you see somebody burst onto the scene, you're like, wait a second, what? He started this thing in 19, at least in the case of FTX in 2019. And he claims he's worth $25 billion. And Bloomberg says he's worth $25 billion. And I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, you, you, you just can't create that much enterprise value that quickly. You just can't. It doesn't happen. Not if it's real enterprise value. You just, there aren't enough hours in the day, even if you're onto the best product ever. Even if you cured Alzheimer's, you still have to hand enough pills out to people or whatever you're doing. I mean, you just, you don't do that. You don't do that. It's not real. Uh, so it's uh, really, you know, uh, something else. I mean, it's it's just remarkable. Meanwhile, you have a lot of reports coming out this morning that withdrawals of funds from crypto.com are being delayed or are not happening. Another one of these exchanges. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, look, if you have any cash, if you have any crypto in any of these things, move it on out move it on out. If you want to go back to trading in a month or three months or 90 days, just give it 90 days. You check if they're still alive. But at least you won't be in a situation where poof, everything's gone. So the question is if you could even get it out because you're going to see contagion effects. I can't predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball. But what I can tell you is I have a great deal of concern about all of these operations to include Coinbase. In fact, what gave me a lot of concerns is that I saw an interview with uh, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong on the All In podcast, and he said, yeah, I've met with Sam Bankman-Fried many times, as recently as like a couple weeks ago, and I never suspected anything was wrong. Well, that's Brian Armstrong saying that. So if he's saying, and this is the CEO of Coinbase, the founder of Coinbase, if he's saying he sees nothing wrong about Sam Bankman-Fried over his many meetings, that's a guy whose judgment you have to seriously discount. Because anyone with some common sense, anyone with some judgment, anyone with some people skills, forget financial skills, would have seen something very, very wrong. You know the media did, but they looked away because they were paid to look away. But now you're talking about one of his competitors. He's not taking ads from FTX. He's a competitor to FTX. And he's saying that you have to take your money out of all these things. You just... and. and that And if you want to keep your money in the crypto coins themselves and put them in cold storage or physical storage or what have you, you know, I, whatever, guys, I'm not giving you financial advice here. I'm just saying I would not trust these things at all, not with a penny. So you have this report over the weekend. Crypto.com uh, says that they accidentally sent more than $400 million worth of Ethereum to another exchange called Gate. And that the exchange sent it back to them upon request. They said it was a total accident. 
I mean, how does that happen? Come on. What? Accidentally? And, and you think about this, if it's perfectly accidental, you've seen the addresses for these things. They're, you know, whatever they are, 26 characters long or longer or whatever they are. What are the odds that you're going to push in the wrong thing and accidentally send 400 million to another exchange? Out of all the addresses in the known universe, what are the odds it's going to be another exchange and not just some other random address? Come on now. It's an insult to our intelligence. What appears to be the case, in fact, is that these people are swapping back and forth the same assets as has been alleged to happen in the case of Celsius. And so that when the auditor comes to visit or when whoever comes to check the asset levels or they have to show their asset levels, they say, look, we've got this. And then as soon as they do that snapshot of their assets and their balance sheet, it goes back to the other guy. Uh, this kind of a scheme is depicted along with another kind of great subplot in the 2012 film, I recommend you watch it, called Arbitrage, starring Richard Gere. 2012 movie called Arbitrage, starring Richard Gere. Really uh, excellent film. I watched it again very recently. And uh, man, it's a good one. They don't make dramas like that anymore. They just don't. Uh, they're Netflix things that are 13 hours long, but they don't make a, you know, you don't see a $50 million and up uh, standard length movie drama any longer. It's just not done a lot. Uh, just sublime. Doesn't have to be some like ode to joy uh, sort of um, show off piece like that Netflix movie, The Irishman, which I didn't think was very good at all. It was boring as hell in my opinion. But like just a normal film that was just a drama that uh, was really excellent. It's a wonderful film. But you have something like this kind of going on in the film where they have to pass an audit, pass due diligence. So they borrow money and they send it back. Something like that. Without spoiling it, that's what happens there. Why are exchanges even sending crypto between each other? Exactly. It makes no sense. And it's happened several times. It doesn't make any sense. Um, it's just it's just crazy. It says not even spinoffs of giant pharmaceutical companies generate 23 billion plus market cap in a short time. Exactly. Exactly. I don't even know if like spinning off Instagram from Facebook has, I mean, it might, the enterprise value of Instagram could be a lot higher than 23 billion, but it's not generating 23 billion in new enterprise value. If you spun off Instagram, you'd maybe extract 10 billion in enterprise value in the short term extra because you'd have certain things that would work better, but not 23 billion. It's nuts. The story never made any sense. Now, getting to this whole matter of, you know, censorship and the like here, it's just amazing, you know, sitting where I sit and it's like, man, how do I like to be, you know, labeled by the media as a fraudster and labeled by the mainstream media fraud, fraud, you're a fraud, Jacob, you're, you're terrible. While they're calling Sam Bankman-Fried a genius, a philanthropist, they're comparing him to J.P. Morgan, Jim Cramer famously doing that, but it wasn't Jim, just Jim Cramer. Scaramucci did as well. Uh, you're looking here. And he also compared him to J.P. Morgan. I mean, all of this lauding of this person who just just a two-bit thief, two-bit fraudster. And the media comes after me and, and supports him and calls him, you know, the next best thing. And even still today, they're pretending that this was just some kind of bank run or some kind of anomaly and not a dastardly scheme to defraud. It's amazing. 
Or they call they you know call Andrew Tate a fraudster, and while celebrating this fat, disgusting, vegan, polyamorous, Democrat fraudster, and it's just like Michael Avenatti. I mean, it's just like they they celebrated him. They said he should be president. Remember that? And he was actually the front runner for a period of time uh, in 2019. Yeah, Avenatti was the front runner for a couple weeks there, as a as a you know as, as a presumptive candidate. Without formally declaring, he did start a pack called the Fight Pack. He used tweets about me to raise money. But you know what's even more amazing in all this is that Andrew Tate, Jacob Wool were banned from Twitter for life, allegedly. Banned from Twitter. But Michael Avenatti, who has been convicted, not merely accused, but convicted of using his Twitter account in a $25 million fraud scheme, as well as other fraud schemes, he's not banned from Twitter. He's there, verified the whole nine yards. He's in prison, but he's still on Twitter. Uh, and same thing with this Bankman Freed tweeting today uh, something. He says, what does he say today? He says, he says, H, and he's sending that tweet says, H, and it's just bizarre. But, you know, as recently as last week, Sam Bankman Freed was using his verified Twitter account to further his fraud scheme, telling customers that everything's fine, capital reserves are good, we're good to go, when they could have potentially pulled their money out. He says that. He says, FTX US is fine. Don't worry. He was lying. That was wire fraud. It was wire fraud, securities fraud, and every other kind of fraud you can imagine. Probably mail fraud too. Oh, but he's allowed on Twitter. And and by the way, I'm actually not saying that he shouldn't be. Okay? I, I'm not. Because frankly, when, when you have a situation like this, it's better that those kind of people can say whatever it is they're going to say, whether it incriminates them or whatever it happens to do, as opposed to not. I'm not saying they should be banned. What I'm saying is, you know, you 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 ban Andrew Tate, you ban Jacob Wall, you ban me on the on the basis that we're just too dishonest, we're just too dangerous. All while you have Sam Bankman-Fried pilfering, and pilfering is not even the right word. I mean, he pilfered somebody. He, he really just stole. And then you have this Hack Friday, whatever the hell that is, billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's remarkable. Uh, as a matter of journalistic practice, on Friday, I set up a Twitter account. I just wanted to see kind of some of these features so I could report them to you guys. Um, I called it the Jacob A. Wall. Um, I did the Twitter blue verified thing. To my surprise, when I went to the Twitter blue and I went to, to you know pay the $8, I was like thinking, okay, so I'm going to have to upload my driver's license, hold it up next to my face or whatever uh, to, you know, verify that it's really me. No, there was no such verification. It's like, I thought the whole point of it was to, you know, verify that when you see somebody who maybe isn't a celebrity or what have you, but, or, or a notable person, but you, they just, you know, it's actually their account. It's the real them. It's not a fake them. They aren't a fake person. But how can you claim to be doing that when you don't have an ID system? Now, what I can tell you is when I had my Twitter account before, uh, which had, I don't know what, 187, 188,000 followers or what have you, I had I was verified. Uh, they verified me in oh, 2017 at some point. And uh, I think maybe May of 2017 or something. Yeah. Yeah, def it was maybe April or May of 17. Um. You had to you had to submit an ID. There was a little thing you had to take a picture of both sides, take a picture holding it up, as I recall. 
maybe not holding it up. I'm not sure about that part, but you had to take a picture so that they knew it was actually you. You don't have that. So if Twitter already has a feature that does that, whether they do it by hand or whether it's automated, there are tons of automated systems that do that. You could even subcontract and bring in or they could build their own. Maybe their their old one was automated. I'm not certain. But it didn't have that. That was weird. <clears throat> so, you know, you have this problem of impersonation even to a greater degree because you have people that are pretending to be me that have blue check marks that aren't me. Um, but it took all of uh, 48 hours and the account was banned once again um, for, you know, just they said for ba for ban evasion. So. As far as anyone can tell, folks, the whole censorship regime at Twitter is just the same as it's always been. Um, the company has the debt, the debt the company owes right now that's tradable on the public market is trading about 60 cents on the dollar or a little bit less. So the market values the company, Twitter that is, at about, oh, doing some rough math here, about $8 billion, $9 billion. Elon Musk, of course, paid $44 billion for it. Um, so that's going to be kind of, uh, an issue. We'll see what happens here. I mean, look, I'm the one who has said, take a wait and see approach when it comes to all this. I have said that repeatedly. I remain in a wait and see mode. Uh, but I just wanted to do some basic in the name of journalism, really more than anything else, wanted to go gather some data on how the site's working now and, and all of that. Um, I think we, uh, no, no refund, no refund. Um, I think we still have a predator DC account up. It's at predator DC show. Um, and I, last I checked, it was still up. I don't, you don't get a refund. I don't think, I mean, whatever I, it's fine. It's, you know, I'm just predator DC show is still, is still in fact up and it is for the predator DC show and it does have a blue check and I'm not tweeting anything besides, um, topics pertaining to that show. So, you know, that's, that's that. Um, so you know, it, it's really, it's really disappointing that, you know, they haven't dealt with the censorship issue sooner. Um, so we just have to, um, we just have to see, uh, see what happens. It's funny. I'm looking at this tweet on the desk of Sam Bankman Fried was a drug called ESAM, which is a, which is a drug used for Parkinson's. Um, but it's used off label for alertness and fo focus benefits. That's really something. So these people were doped to the moon. It's just crazy. Um, in any event here, I want to talk about this story before we wrap up. Let me make sure I didn't. Uh, oh, here's another data point on this FTX. Just a couple things here. The CPA firm that they were using uh, announced they were the first CPA firm to have an address in the metaverse. And in the metaverse, their address was like a nightclub. Um, in this a parody account, which I love, it's called John W. Rich, uh, fake tech exec says, uh, if this is your accountant's office, it shows a picture of their metaverse office. You're going to jail. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, what the hell, man? It's just the froth in this economy that enabled all this crap. It's just really something, you know? Um, I go here to, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like uh, me in my 20s is another meme out says, me in my 20s, my portfolio of ETH, Shiba Inu, all these other cryptocurrencies, and now my FTX account's gone. My parents in their 20s. And it says, uh, you know, it's like, this house would be great. I wonder, this house would be great for winter. I wonder if it has room for all of our cars and our skis. Yeah, it is. I mean, it just the, you know, part of it is like just barrier to entry and you, the barrier to entry to really a lot better investments was much lower um, 25 years ago. It really was. It really was. I mean, you could get into some really good stuff 25 years ago. 
You could buy a house in Orange County, California, 25 years ago for 200, 250 grand. You know, I mean, and meanwhile, it's not as though as the price has now become a million two that your wage has increased 5x. It hasn't. So I'm just saying the barrier to entry into really solid blue chip investments, whether it was real estate, whether it was a lot of things, um, was much lower back then. It really was. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's really something to see here. Uh, go to, uh, you know, one thing I pointed out on the short time I did have a Twitter account, I said, you know, the, the fraudsters of the old era, the old school fraudsters like Madoff, uh, they had so much more class and dignity than these new guys. You know, they at least would put on a suit. And I was talking about how like people that were ripped off by Madoff, if they're still alive, if they're not, you know, haven't died in the last 15 years, they still brag about it. It's like still a, a conversation piece to them that they got ripped off by Madoff. They talk about it. Nobody in 10 years is going to be bragging about or talking about kind of, you know, as a conversation piece, how they were ripped off by the slovenly vegan Sam Bankman Freed. Let me tell you how you can support this show. I mean, the first thing is that you can share the links. That's critical. Share the links, get them out there. But otherwise, you can support the show financially via Cash App at Real Jacob. Well, somebody asked for Venmo. I'm banned from Venmo and PayPal. Or you can go to uh, jacobwool.org slash podcast. So you can go cash app at real Jacob Wool, or you can go to jacobwool.org slash podcast or click the podcast tab on the website. That'll bring you to the gum road for the show. And basically that that's just a system that enables payments uh, to support the content. They've done great for us with Predator DC. Uh, their, their fees are good. They're secure. They haven't banned us uh, or anything like that. So I would encourage you one way or another, support the show financially. If you get value from the show, and I hope you do, you send value back our way, uh, jacobwool.org slash podcast or cash app at Real Jacob Wool. And of course, uh, share the links, bring in new viewers. Of course, we're up against just unbelievable censorship. We're up against the algorithms, the left uh, trying to shut us down left and right. Uh, so all of your support's greatly appreciated. It really is. And uh, we've got a couple of regulars now that even just anonymously send in donations. And it's it's really been really been a good help to, to make this uh, self-sufficient, bringing it off the censored.tv network now and, and making it an independent show. Uh, it's critical that, that I'm able to get that support. Uh, I want to talk quickly here about this case of this uh, Ethan uh, Liming. He was a young man that was beaten to death. Uh, by uh, these thugs in Akron, Ohio. Did you uh, see this, uh, what happened to this young man? We talked about it back on the old Censored.TV show. But uh, he was brutally beaten to death. And um, unfortunately, what has happened now, if you can believe this, the suspects were only indicted on manslaughter charges instead of murder. Can you believe this? So it's at a basketball court in Akron, Ohio, uh, outside of the school that was founded by LeBron James, no less. And these three guys, uh, black guys, black thugs, um, beat this 17-year-old boy, white kid, uh, to death and then stole his car. So they beat him to death on the curb, beat him to death, spit on his dead body and stole his car. I mean, just took off with a car afterwards for the hell of it. Why not? They've been arrested and they were not charged with murder. They've only been charged with manslaughter. You know, I mean, this is, 
this is what 15 20 minutes away from where i've been put through unbelievable uh, immense legal battles in cleveland over robocalls and you have this brutal murder second degree murder clearly if not first in fact it's it's actually a first degree murder really because when you talk about premeditation, it doesn't have to be days or, or even hours. It can be minutes or seconds of deciding and premeditating. This is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Beaten to death. Beaten to death. His car stolen. I mean, if nothing else, if you kill somebody in the course of stealing their car, even accidentally, by the way, even completely accidentally, or, or even you don't kill them. So, like, for instance, if you um, rob a bank and the teller drops dead, has a heart attack, um, that's called felony murder. It's called felony murder because somebody has died in the commission of a felony. It's called felony murder. Uh, If you get into a, let's say you rob a bank, you, you run away, you're in a high speed chase with the police. One of the police officers drives off the road, dies in a crash. You are charged with felony murder. It happened to Derek Chauvin. He was convicted on account of felony murder. It's, it's a death in the course of the commission of a felony. So at the least, even if you were to say that they didn't even mean to cause his death, it's still felony murder. No, but they did. They beat him to death and spit on his dead body, stomped in his skull on the pavement of this basketball court and then stole his car and they've only been charged with manslaughter and they'll probably, you know, in that part of the country, uh, that kind of a case, um, you know, maybe they'll be charged with, maybe they'll, they'll end up being sentenced to eight years or something and they'll be right back out on the streets and they can kill someone else. Oh my God. I mean, this is, this is so I don't need, what do you even say anymore? At some point, I'm just at a loss for words. The father of, uh, the father of, of the, the son who was, who was killed of Ethan, um, said this, he said, when I asked Brian LaPrinzi in the initial prosecutor's meeting I had with him, I asked him if race made a difference, if my son's skin color made a difference in the way they are approaching it. And he said, yes. So the prosecutor says, because it's a black on white killing, as we know, most killings, most murders, homicides are within the same race. So it's black on black, it's white on white, it's Asian on Asian. But when they go across racial lines, it's almost always black on white. We know that statistically speaking. I mean, it's like 95 plus percent of the time. Okay. And so they say, yes, yes, your son was white. They're black. They killed him brutally and stole his car after they killed him. And um, they're only getting charged with manslaughter. They might do eight years. They might do 15 years, 10 years, seven years, six years. Who knows? It's so unbelievable. I mean, I I just, I don't even know how to express the outrage of, of this any longer. I don't know what kind of a country we have left. I don't know what kind of a system we have left. It, it, it's just, uh, 
it, it's 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 what I warned about. It's what I warned about on that fateful episode of Man Up with Jacob Ole, the old program. Uh, on the last episode before Election Day 2020, I said the title of the episode was Brace for Impact. And I, and I told everyone, I said, if Biden wins, there's going to be a process undertaken in which from the standpoint of the way race relations work, we're going to be entering Nelson Mandela's South Africa. That's what's going to be implemented. And that is unfortunately exactly what we're seeing. I, I, I take no pleasure in being right about that prediction. I wish more than anything, I wish I were wrong. I really wish I were wrong. But unfortunately, that's, that is what we are seeing. And, uh, and it, brings me, it brings me no joy to be right about that. Go to your questions here before we wrap up. Going to have my MBA in May. If I chose to move to a more lucrative industry, which industry would be best for my skill set? Uh, it says here, I'm in higher ed on the administrative side, business development. I'm coming up on 2.5 years business degree. I mean, I'd say whatever you like. I mean, you use your business degree to get into something you enjoy. If there's something you like, I mean, within reason, as long as there's some kind of a you know serviceable market there, I, I'd get into that. So if you if you find you know, engineering type business to be interesting to you, do that. If you find something else interesting, do that. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a, a good way to go. It says never go to a basketball court uh, in the hood, let alone uh, in the hood at all. Yeah, exactly. Stay the hell away from these places. That's the number one thing you can do. Got a fire truck going by here. Hope you, hopefully it's not too loud on the mic. Um, in any event here, it says I gave up after PA elected Fetterman. I want Trump to run, not for policies, but just to make the left angry, no policies can fix America. And that's what this person says here. Uh, Johnny in the chat, guys, thanks for tuning in here. I've got to run. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you on this Monday, November 14. We're going to have a lot more developments. I'm sure between today and Thursday at 2 PM live. When I join you again, in the meantime, support the show cash app, real Jacob wool, share the links, get them out there. You can also support financially at jacobwool.org slash podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today. I hope I could help unpack all of this news. And I'll see you Thursday, 2 p.m. live here just after that on podcast apps everywhere. Thanks so much.